We are cruising right along in the book of Acts. We are in chapter number five, and uh, we are going to finish chapter number five this morning. This is part three of that sermon. Aren't you glad it wasn't one sermon? Part three of the sermon, The Spirit-Filled Church. We started back in uh, Acts 4, verse 32, and it will take us through the end of the chapter this this morning. And so far, we saw a church inspired by the Holy Spirit. We saw a cheap imitation last week, talking about Ananias and Sapphira. And today, we pick up in Acts 5, verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll get into the message together. So follow along with me as I read. It's a little bit of a lengthy portion, but it's all narrative. So follow along as I read, starting in Acts 5, verse 12. It says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and on couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him and called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly we found shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, For they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, 
to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone, for if this counsel or work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to preach and teach Jesus Christ. We've got a lot of ground to cover to finish this chapter, but as we do, let me ask you to consider in your heart and mind this question. What would it take to keep you from sharing the gospel? What would it take to keep you from sharing the gospel? What would it take to stop you from fulfilling the Great Commission by reaching out to this community? Notice, first of all, in, in our passage this morning, we find this crescendo of influence. A crescendo of influence. In verses 12 through 16, it gives us a description of all of the ways that the church uh, was just uh, growing in their impact and influence in the community. First of all, we see, it says in verse 12, that by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and the rest of no man joined himself to them. But the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both uh, men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto, about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. There's two distinct types of miracles here in these verses. The first type of miracle we discover is miracles of remediation, healing, miracles of remediation. If you recall back in Acts chapter 4, the church had prayed that God's miraculous power would fall on them. It says in verse 29, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. God was doing exactly that. God was answering the church's prayer. The Holy Spirit's power had manifested itself mightily as the, the apostles provided miraculous remedies to any and all that were infirmed. This was exactly what Jesus had promised would happen in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. 
And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Christ had promised to answer their prayers. Christ had promised that they would do great works in his name. And now we find that not only is all Jerusalem coming to be healed, but the suburbs, the cities, and the villages around Jerusalem are coming to be healed. And multitudes of people were being healed. Demons were being cast out. Diseases were put behind them. It was just a wondrous miracle being wrought in the church. It's clearly presented in all of Scripture And very clearly demonstrated here that what God has promised, he will perform. Anything you ask in my name, Jesus said, I will do it. And the church prayed for power and they received it. Do we take God's promises as seriously as the New Testament church did? Do we believe him when he challenges us to, as it says in Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. These Christians believed in the power and in the promises of God. They prayed believing and God replied. And your faith in God is reflected in your faith in prayer. One man said that a prayer warrior is a person who is convinced that God is omnipotent, that God has the power to do anything, to change anyone, and to intervene in any circumstance, a person who truly believes this refuses to doubt God. And the faith of the apostles was evident in their prayer, and it was answered with God's power to heal. The healing ministry of the apostles confirmed their authority as as apostles, and it also confirmed the authenticity of the message that they were preaching to the people in Jerusalem. The power of the apostles was so evident that the people believed that even if Peter walked by them and his shadow fell on them, they could be healed. All came to them to be healed. There were none turned away. Any and all that came were healed. By the way, it's very clear here, there were none that did not have enough faith to be healed. There were none that had any kind of sickness or infirmity beyond the apostles' power to heal. There were no exceptions given to us in Acts chapter 5. All were healed. This ministry was so powerful and so pervasive that the sick literally lined the streets, laying on cots, pallets, anything that they could drag together, just hoping that these 12 apostles might walk by. About the issue of Peter's shadow, one author pointed out that in the ancient world, a person's shadow was the subject of much superstition and was believed to represent his or her power and personality to literally be an extension of that person. Peter didn't possess the power. There was no power in Peter's shadow. The power was that of the Spirit of God. But in spite of the people's superstitions, they were all healed. 
This was a special gifting of power for a special group during a special time in church history. There are no apostles today. The office of apostle doesn't exist today. There are those in our uh, day and age that claim to have such healing power, but they definitely don't walk through the streets or the halls of the hospitals or the nursing homes healing everybody that they pass by. That's precisely the kind of power that the apostles had. And none were excluded. All were healed. And the news spread beyond Jerusalem, and people came from the surrounding cities in order for the chance to be healed. There were miracles of remediation. There were also miracles of regeneration. Regeneration, as incredible as the healing miracles were, there were even greater miracles happening through the Spirit's power. People were getting saved. It's one thing to take a broken body and make it whole, but it's an entirely different thing to take a dead spirit and make it alive. And that's precisely the miracle the Holy Spirit performs in the heart of men that believe in Jesus Christ. As Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 say, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we are all dead, having no hope, the Bible says, without God in this world. Apart from salvation in Christ, we are enemies and aliens to God. We are completely undeserving of heaven, and we are destined for eternal punishment in a literal place called hell. But my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Ephesians 2, 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You were dead, but eternal life has been purchased by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by God's precious Son. And the Spirit of God has the power to make life where there is none. Colossians 2 verse 13 says, And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Make no mistake, it's miraculous to see a sick person made completely healthy and whole, but there's nothing so miraculous as seeing a man who is dead in his sins, who is hopeless and powerless to save himself, made utterly and completely new through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
old things are passed away. All things are become new. What about you this morning? Do you remember the day that Christ made you new? Do you remember the moment in which the Holy Spirit transformed you from death to life? Do you recall the hour that you placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation from sins and cried out to him for forgiveness and cleansing and found that he was ready and willing to make you a child of God? Do you remember that moment in your life? We long to see miracles, and we long to see the power of God manifest itself in our day-to-day life, but don't ever lose sight of the miracle that God has wrought in every man that calls on him in faith. John Newton wrote the timeless hymn, Amazing Grace. Before he got saved, John Newton was a fiend. Just a wicked sailor who eventually captains slave ships. But he got saved. He was the wretch that the song refers to. And he meant what he wrote. On his tombstone, you will find this epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, in Libertine, a sa- our servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Never, never lost sight of the miracle that God had wrought in his life. What a wondrous thing God has done for all men. And what a wondrous invitation he has extended to a lost and dying world. And what a wonderful commission we've been entrusted with. Think about that in Jerusalem. Just as all that were diseased and crippled and and suffering were healed, all can be saved. All are invited to sit at God's table. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told of the feast. In Luke 14, verses 16 through 23, Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said to his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You want to know what this church is lacking? We could use more miracles around here. We are... We just give you truth. 
we are struggling to exist. We are on the verge of dying, and we long for a miracle. But is it enough for us to pray, God, just bail us out of this mess so that North Belt can endure? God's plan A for growth in his church is sharing the gospel with the lost, baptizing and making disciples, and teaching them what it is to follow Christ. There is no plan B. This church, this church will die if we don't unlock the doors open the gates, and go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. God wants his house to be filled. Don't you want it to be filled also? Are you sure? What if God desires to fill it with people that have never been to church in their whole life? What if God desires to fill it with people that don't have perfect and proper families? What if God in his mercy and his grace brings in those that are spiritually poor and maimed and crippled and blind? It was Jesus himself that declared, they that are whole have no need of a physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And my question for us to consider this morning is, what is most important to this church? The souls of men or your comfort and convenience? I was reminded of the rich young ruler. He came to Christ and he was so enthusiastic. And I think he was sincere. Came to him and said, Master, Master, what must I do? And Jesus answers with a list of good works. And the man says, I've done all those things. Lord, what must I do? Well, you need to obey your parents and do that. Lord, I've lived that way my whole life. I've checked all those boxes. I've stayed under that umbrella. What must I do, Lord? And then Jesus looks on us and loves us like he loved that rich young man. And he says, you're lacking one thing. Give up what you have. Your comforts, your convenience, and focus on others. Take that which you value and sell it for the sake of the soul's of men. And then we hesitate and we become anxious and afraid and like that young man we go away sad. Because in reality, and it's not just I'm t- I'm talking about American Christianity in general, Baptist churches in general, in reality 
We rejoice in the salvation of the lost. We love, man, there's no better day but to have a missionary come in and tell us all the things that are happening on the field, all the people that are getting saved, all the things that are going on, and we get excited about that, and we rejoice over that, and we want to support that. And then we hear about, you know, church planters and those that are on the streets, and they're seeing souls saved and baptized and added to the church. And we hear about, we hear about the jail ministry and those criminals, they're getting saved, and God is transforming their life. And we rejoice about the salvation of the lost just so long as they go to church somewhere else. How very far we are from the mind of our Heavenly Father who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We desperately need more miracles around here. Multitudes were saved there in Jerusalem. All found healing. The gospel was preached to any and all that would listen. It's also interesting to notice this. For the very first time, Luke says, multitudes of women were coming to Christ. Multitudes of people, men and women, were baptized and added to the church. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. There was a crescendo of influence. And then notice, the conflict intensifies. The conflict intensifies for this church. Let me pick up the pace a little bit. The church was enjoying the miracles. They were enjoying the moving of the Holy Spirit. Everybody in Jerusalem was pleased. But in Acts 5.17, it tells us that the religious leaders were filled with indignation, which is another way of saying they were consumed with jealousy. They were consumed with jealousy. The whole region was coming to see the church, not, not to see the temple or to go to synagogue. They were consumed with the jealousy of the popularity of this church, and they seized the apostles in their jealous rage. The apostles were seized there in verses 17 and 18. They were arrested, and they were thrown into the common or public prison. This time, last time it was Peter and John. This time it's not just Peter and John. It's all of the, the 12 apostles there. And this is where things get interesting. The apostles are seized, they're thrown in prison, and then it tells us the apostles are set free. All 12 of them are awaiting their fate within the prison cell, and an angel appears and opens the doors. And the angel instructs them to return to the temple and stand and speak all the words of this life. It's ironic, isn't it? The Sadducees are the ones that locked up the apostles because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in eternal life. They also, by the way, did not believe in angels. And here, an angel tells the apostles to go and preach the message of eternal life in a resurrected Christ. This is the first of three prison miracles found in the book of Acts. Peter would also be released from jail by an angel in Acts 12, and an earthquake interrupted Paul and Silas's singspiration service in prison. And this led to a very confused group of authorities the next day. The authorities were stupefied in the morning. They gathered together all the council. They called all the representatives of the people together. This was a bigger council than the one that questioned Peter and John before. And once they were all set and ready, they sent for the apostles. But the officers came back, having found locked doors and posted guards, but an empty cell. One author wrote, The facts recorded in these verses are filled with irony. 
The guards were carefully keeping empty jail cells secure. The highest powers of Israel were gathered to judge prisoners they did not have. While the frenzied leaders were deliberating as what happened to the men who had been in their custody, they were told the apostles were preaching in the courts of the temple. The captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, were perplexed as to how to explain the locked but empty cells. They were faced with yet another circumstance they could not ex explain. And as verse 24 says, they wondered as what this would become. This Christianity thing was blowing up in their face and they feared it. They were doing their very best to put a stop to the message and the miracles, but the miracles were multiplying. The message continued to go forth. And then they discovered that although the apostles had escaped, they were not in hiding. They were openly preaching and teaching in the temple, just like they were when they were arrested. So the council tries a different approach. This time, the apostles are not seized. They are summoned. They are summoned. It's incredible to realize the boldness of these 12 men. They were not concerned for their safety. They went to the very spot where they arrested, preached the same words for which they were arrested. Because the officers feared a riot, this time they asked the apostles to please come with them, and the apostles complied. And in verse 28, we hear the charges against them. It says, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to fill the, uh, bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest would not even say the name of Jesus. He says, didn't we tell you not to speak in this name? It's interesting to note that in the future, some rabbinical writers would carry this precedent on and they would refer to Jesus as so-and-so in the Talmud. But we also have a reluctant admission to the success of their ministry. According to the high priest, Jerusalem had been filled with their doctrine. And now notice the statement of the apostles' reply. The apostles' statement in verses 29 through 32, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. They remain consistent in their resolve. They gave the same answer that they had given before. We must obey God rather than men. The word obey means to obey a ruler, someone in authority. God's authority is supreme. God's law supersedes all civil law. And should the government legislate contrary to God's law, we must still obey God. His authority is ultimate and supreme. And at this answer, the authorities were convicted, or were not convicted, but rather they were incensed. They were furious, is what it means there. They were furious to the point that they decided, we got to kill him. How are we going to kill him? And the apostles were indeed guilty of disobeying the Sanhedrin, but this was not a capital offense, and this council was preparing to exceed its own authority and kill them. But then a very popular Pharisee proposed another solution, the authorities' solution. This solution was presented by Gamaliel, a very famous and well-respected Pharisee and teacher, among whose pupils would be the Apostle Paul, by the way. 
And for the sake of time, we will not read it again, but his argument, purely politically motivated, was a simple one. If this movement is of man, it will eventually die out. But if it is of God, you cannot stop it. The council concurred with this, which, by the way, was a political win for the Pharisees in their struggle against the Sadducees. In order to drive their authority home, however, they had the apostles beaten. This likely would have been 39 lashes across the back and the chest with a whip. And when they had released them, the spirit of the apostles after their release reveals a lot. The apostles' spirit, in verse 41, it says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. We see their overjoyed spirit. They were overjoyed. They rejoiced. How did the apostles, as one commentator said, respond to this illegal treatment from their nation's religious leaders? They rejoiced. Jesus had told them to expect persecution and had instructed them to rejoice in it. The opposition of men meant the approval of God, and it was actually a privilege to suffer for his name. They were mistreated, their rights were violated, and they rejoiced in it. We often fear rejection or ridicule. We dread the opposition, opposition that we might face if we share the gospel. And that fear is enough to keep us silent altogether. The apostles rejoiced in their arrest, in the opposition, in the accusations, even the beatings. If only we could realize what a joy it is to suffer for Christ. Philippians 1 verse 29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3 says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 10, Blessed or happy are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We need to change our attitude and share the gospel and rejoice. We ought to obey God rather than men. It's, it's a complete paradigm shift, but there is honor in dishonor. In standing for Christ, there is honor in dishonor. An overjoyed spirit, and then notice they had an obedient spirit. It says they preached daily in the temple where they had just been arrested and beaten and they went beyond that, they preached from house to house. The word translated preach there gives us our English word for evangelize. This is the first time it's used in Acts. It's used 15 times in the book of Acts. It simply means to preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. These men were bold in their witness. They fulfilled their commission in spite of opposition. They didn't change their method. They didn't change their message. They continued preaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Christians, we have the very same commission today. But many, most, choose the path of omission. 
and we need to share the gospel. D.L. Moody was a fearless witness for Christ. He sought to speak about spiritual matters in order to at least reach one soul every day. He would say things like, how does your soul prosper today? Or do you love the Lord? Do you belong to Christ? Someone once replied to him, he, he asked them about their soul, and he, they replied, that's none of your business. And he said, no, no, that is my business. And they said, you must be moody. Some were offended by his bluntness, but not a few were led to Christ right then and there. D.L. Moody said, the more we use the means and opportunity we have, the more will our ability and our opportunities be increased. He also said, I live for souls and for eternity. I want to win some soul to Christ. He was not satisfied only to address great crowds, which he did. He also felt constrained to speak to people personally and urge them to trust Jesus Christ. These men were obedient. They preached the gospel. That's what obedience for a Christian is. It was Curtis Hudson that said the only alternative to soul winning is disobedience to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. We serve a God that performs what he promises. This church had faith in the promises of God. They experienced answered prayer. They prayed believing. We also serve a God that desires to see souls saved. That miraculously transforms the heart of the most wicked of men through the power of His Spirit. If only we desired to see souls saved as much as God desires it. If only we were in awe of the miracle of salvation. I don't know if this is true for you, but I, I think this is true for a lot of conservative Christians. We look at the world around us and we think, it's too late for them. The gap between us is just too wide, and we've written them off. But I don't believe God has. I know He hasn't because we're still here. And we ought to obey God rather than men. We need to see the world around us with eyes of compassion, compelling them to come to Christ. It'll make Sunday services a little more colorful, but it'll build the kingdom of Christ. Don't fear the opposition. Share the gospel. Don't worry about the ridicule. Give the gospel. What excuse will we have when we stand before our Savior in the presence of such fearless witnesses as these apostles in this first church and we neglected to share the gospel? I feel like we'll get there and say, I knew you were coming. I could feel it. Then where are all those that you told about Christ. We can't bring the whole world to Christ 
as one man once said, but we must bring Christ to the whole world. And God give us the determination and the attitude of these men who walked in the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing would deter them from obeying Christ's command to share the gospel. Let's bow our heads this morning. I want to give opportunity to you. This is a hard message for me to preach. Much of it, most of it, I was preaching to myself. But I expect God has spoken to your heart by His Spirit through His Word. And we want to give opportunity to you to respond, to give that to Him, and to pray and ask for His help. As the piano plays, you take this time and respond.